Okay, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Father, we just pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to your word and that we would see more clearly the uh, guidance you have for our souls and our life uh, buried in the treasures of your word. We just ask that you'd just guide this lesson this morning and that you would be glorified in our learning. And we just give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. I actually have the uh, dubious honor of introducing a new book today. Uh, Timothy Keller's called Forgive, subtitled, Why Should I and How Can I? I'm going to warn you right now that uh, he doesn't pull any punches in here. I was talking to Seth a few moments ago, and uh, Seth will agree that uh, he comes out hitting hard and shooting for right between the eyes. So be prepared. Um, I'm going to try and be true to what he's written here, so don't blame me. Uh, when I first got this assignment of forgive, before I'd even gotten the book, I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, this would be a nice little lesson on interpersonal relationships and, you know, uh, being kind to each other and that kind of stuff. And uh, that's, that's definitely not it at all to begin with. Um, Keller jumps in both feet into national and international affairs, changing attitudes around the world. And uh, we're going to look at a couple quick slides here that uh, kind of give you a hint at what he's trying to point out. first one here is probably one we can all uh, identify with. Uh, you know, to err is human, forgive divine has kind of been the guiding rule here. You know, have a forgiving heart and everything. Uh, Keller's going to make the case that the uh, prevailing attitudes, not just in this country, but around the world, uh, no longer are holding to this idea. Here's a few of some recent comments. We continue to believe forgiveness makes a person superior. And if they can't manage something so simple, the fault lies with them. This is a deeply ingrained religious hangover. You like that word? A hangover from Christianity. The whole implication there is Christianity is obviously something past tense, past tense and uh, not working today. Huh? We condemn persons who won't forgive, saying they are poisoning themselves, which is tantamount to another, ready for this one, Abrahamic culturally ingrained guilt trip. In short, it is victim blaming. So the attitude there is uh, if we tell someone that, uh, well, you can't forgive uh, or you're not able to forgive, you're really hurting yourself. Uh, we're actually blaming them for the problem. 
The last one here. Rewrite. This is a mandate now. This is how much God and his word is being rejected. Rewrite the outdated narratives of forgiveness, which idealize the pseudo-spiritual fairy tale of redemption and forgiveness over, ready, the inherent right for people to not be abused. So obviously this is uh, in reference to some macro-national type events and not uh, individual relationships, but the attitudes hold the same and, and filter down through, the, through our lives. So this lesson today is the introduction, which is, I think, six or seven pages long, as well as chapter one. So we're going to start with the introduction. And again, these are all Keller's words, not mine, but this is the, uh, the beginning of his book. The conflict over forgiveness. He starts out by looking back at the uh, era of, in S South Africa when uh, Desmond Tutu had proposed that the nation not follow the example of the Nuremberg trials. And while we may be a little detached here, there were atrocities in that society that were on par with some of the atrocities that only 20 years earlier or so had been uh, brought out in the Nuremberg trials in post-Nazi Germany. And everyone expected that the nation would go that path, you know, get justice, right these wrongs. And uh, I may be wrong here, but I think this is one of the first times in history on a national level where an individual was able to rise above the clamor for vengeance and convince the nation to uh, adopt a policy of forgiveness. Tutu mentioned that uh, without forgiveness, there's no future for South Africa. They would have been tearing each other up for decades. So Tutu divides the plan that offered amnesty and forgiveness for any perpetrators of violence, black or white, as long as they would come forward and publicly confess the full truth of what they had done during the certain uh, prescribed years. And I think this was revolutionary. I, like I say, I might be wrong, but it seems to me this was revolutionary in history. There were no civil penalties for the confessors. Tutu believed that the light of truth and knowledge would make it possible for their society to move forward. They formed a Truth and Reconciliation Commission 
And this commission created opportunities for personal forgiveness to be extended and relationships to be restored. Tutu argued that the alternative to forgiveness in South Africa, if they didn't follow this path, would be a similar cycle of violence that had been seen in the Balkans after the breakup of Yugoslavia. And if you remember there, there was devolved into ethnic genocide. So many people argue that a forgiveness culture helps abusers escape accountability. And that's what we're seeing today is this idea of a cancel culture. We'll look into that a little bit more later. Tutu argued that without forgiveness, Abusers hold us in thrall, and we need to understand that concept of being held in thrall. That's being held forcefully under the power of another individual. So the concept that he's trying to communicate here is that they didn't extend forgiveness, that the individuals who had been perpetrators in the past would continue to hold uh, the individuals mentally and on a broad scale socially within their power, their grasp, and they would not be able to move on. So he rejected the Nuremberg trial model and established his Truth and Reconciliation Commission. <clears throat> Keller, when Tutu had actually died in 2021, wrote uh, in a, on Twitter basically what I just talked about, how successful this had been. And the response to Keller was pretty mixed. Many survivors of abuse warned that the requirement for forgiveness had been used against victims, uh, imploring them to, to move on, get over it, forgive. Some responders saw it as a strategy, get this, a strategy, forgiveness, a strategy for institutions and abusers to avoid accountability. So it's something created in the past to allow people to get off the hook. Others argue today that this idea of forgiveness is actually in the modern era just quaint and hokey and downright irrelevant. So, that's the conflict we now have with the idea of forgiveness. The next uh, idea that Keller brings up is the fading of forgiveness. How did we reach this point? The contradictory responses to Tutu's work after his death serve as a microcosm of our own society's conflicted attitude towards forgiveness. It's, it reached a point where uh, in June of 2020, uh, 2020 uh, an Elizabeth Brunig which is a New York Times columnist, tweeted, 
There's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. So it becomes very one-sided. We want retaliation, we want atonement, we want justice, but the concept of forgiveness is uh, like a dying ember. When she wrote that, she was immediately inundated with angry emails. It was so bad that she soon deleted the text. And she said she did so because she was concerned for the distress that she was causing uh, the people who were responding. So her uh, comment about her concern about the lack of forgiveness uh, was in effect canceled. She went on to explain later, and she goes, I see in American culture how offended people seem to be uh, seem by the very idea of forgiveness itself. They seem to find it immoral, actually, and I think this is very disturbing. So it's almost like we're reaching a point in our culture where uh, forgiveness, the concept of forgiveness is doing a whole 180 from the historic Christian ideal of forgiveness. Many are finding the concept of forgiveness uh, increasingly problematic. Uh, in 2014, following the deaths uh, of Michael Brown in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in New York, we saw the rise of a new movement called Black Lives Matter. After George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis in 2020, the calls for systemic racism in Western societies burst over the banks of, the, of any one organization. It basically exploded beyond just the Black Lives Matter movement. And they saw millions of people taking to the streets around the world, not just America, but around the world, calling for change. And the idea of forgiveness was kind of absent in those calls. In fact, one rapper put out, uh, this isn't your grandparents' civil rights movement, uh, identifying the intensity of the anger and the uh, desire for uh, vengeance and lacking any, any uh, semblance of forgiveness whatsoever. Our cultural problems with forgiveness is not uh, confined to uh, matters of race. Same thing is happening in the Me Too movement, which also struggles with calls to forgive. <coughs> Many say, uh, ask the question, doesn't forgiving perpetrators only encourage additional abuse? Which is actually a, a valid question. Also, in the world of social media, it seems that uh, any little wrongful tweet or post, they're never forgiven, they're never forgotten, and can come back and haunt people for perpetuity. Recently, we had uh, this incident with Whoopi Goldberg, who 
made a disparaging remarks about the Holocaust, which she immediately apologized for. She was still suspended and punished. One uh, Jewish uh, author and writer noted, this is his quote, he cited, Jewish and biblical tradition of forgiving the person who repents. Uh, he expressed concern that the culture's need to cancel, even those who are willing to change, would not serve to diminish the bigotry. In fact, he's concerned that it would actually fuel it. So this idea of the fading of forgiveness is a, is a Keller pointing out is a reality today. The last one, to hell with forgiveness culture. Relatives of the nine African Americans killed in Charleston recently publicly said to the shooter, Dylan Roof, I forgive you. It's got to be hard. A Washington Post columnist responded that black America should stop forgiving white racists. They said the expectation and admiration for black people's forgiveness is, a, is just about protecting whiteness. She sees forgiveness as a tool. It enables white denial about the harms that racist violence creates. She said our constant forgiveness perpetuates the cycle of attacks and abuse. So you can see the idea of uh, Tutu's type of social forgiveness is uh, not even in consideration anymore. There's other, uh, other events that Keller identifies the Amber Geiger situation, the Dallas police officer who went into a wrong apartment thinking it was hers and saw someone there and shot him, killed him. Yet, the victim's brother publicly forgave her and embraced her. Heart of forgiveness there. Across the country, there was a real moving response to that. Matter of fact, it was on both hands. On one hand, the Institute for Law Enforcement Administration gave him the Ethical Courage Award, but other people uh, told him he was only enabling white dominance. In response to that, because it was so heavily in the news, a Barbara rental, uh, Reynolds who actually marched in, in the uh, civil rights protests of the 60s, argued that the movements led by Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela won the moral high ground and persuaded the majority because they were marked by the ethics of love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And they triumphed because of the power of the spiritual approach. She concluded her article by saying love and forgiveness are missing from this movement. 
today. Forgiveness, he argued, disarms the oppressors and wins over many of their supporters. Well, this continued to blow up, and we have one individual by the name of Sabine Birdsong who blames uh, the abusers of forgiveness not just on uh, bad practice, but she blames it on Christianity itself. So here comes the wholesale rejection of Christianity, right? The fault lies with them, referring to Christianity. The author blames this on a deeply ingrained religious hangover, as we read in the beginning from Christianity. She says it's a mindset that manifests itself in edicts, like forgive and forget, turn the other cheek. We condemn persons who won't forgive, saying they're poisoning themselves. Again, these are the quotes we read from the beginning. The uh, final quote uh, that I had there where she said I identifies forgiveness as a pseudo-spiritual fairy tale of redemption and forgiveness and that that overshadows the inherent right for people to not be abused. This final quote isolates the problem we feel today, the apparent contradiction between forgiveness and justice. However, Keller identifies that we have an indelible need for forgiveness. He he points out that it is a profound need to grant forgiveness as well as a need to receive forgiveness. He has a one example I found pretty interesting, and then we're going to move on to chapter one. But then New Year's Eve, 1843, in a Lutheran parish in Mottlingen, Germany, a young man came to the door of the church's pastor and unburdened himself in confession. His, his uh, confessions were both major and minor events. The man experienced great relief, and word of it spread around the town. By the end of January, 35 people had come to unburden their consciences with the pastor and ask God's forgiveness. And by mid-February, over 150 people had voluntarily walked up to the pastor's door and unburdened themselves, confessed, and asked for forgiveness. What was remarkable was that there were concrete changes in behavior afterwards. Stolen goods were returned, enemies were reconciled, infidelities were confessed, broken marriages were restored, crimes, including even a case of infanticide, were solved. And alcoholics found sobriety. This one act of forgiveness ignited a movement towards greater justice in the entire town. So, now we're looking at uh, this conflict in our modern society, this conflict about the idea of forgiveness. And uh, we can see that the proponents of abandoning the forgiveness model and just pursuing justice and vengeance uh, probably don't have the heart 
of Christ in their uh, thinking. So we're going to look at probably the most uh, dramatic uh, teaching on the concept of forgiveness uh, in the New Testament, and that is the uh, parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, this passage is perhaps the most sustained treatment of the subject of forgiveness in the New Testament. This realistic account of life in this world shows how an act of forgiveness, even with all its healing and life-transforming potential, can still be abused in a way that brings ruin to all those around. In Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Peter asked, how many times do I have to forgive? This is on the heels of Jesus' teaching if your brother sins against you. And this wasn't the first time that there had been teaching about the idea of forgiveness. Uh, if we think about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.14, the only writer uh, added to the Lord's Prayer in which he says emphatically that if we deny forgiveness to others, God will deny forgiveness to us. I have to re really wrestle with that, but uh, what I came up, because he says the same thing to Peter at the end of uh, when Peter asked the question. Oh, or at the end of the parable here of the unforgiving servant. And uh, what I came up with is, you know, at this point in time, Jesus still had a large group of followers, right? They hadn't all run away yet after he told them that, uh, hey, you, you know, only those who can uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and uh, he was wholesalely abandoned by a lot of these followers. But at this time, he still had a lot of followers. And uh, the thinking there, or the realization there, and what Christ shows us many times, is that uh, uh, some had ears to hear, and others didn't. Some had eyes to see, and couldn't. And some understood, and others didn't. And uh, I think the idea here is that uh, those who uh, could not extend forgiveness um, probably... Uh, had not had their ears open, their eyes open, and their, and their heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh and were thereby able to reconvey the same heart of forgiveness that they had received from the Lord. Yes? Debt? We're going to, we are going to get into that heavily here in just a few moments. Yeah. Yeah, and Keller really gets into that. It, it was quite eye-opening for me, I have to admit. Um, as we move in to read this parable here, remember Peter's question about how many times do I have to forgive? And, uh, you know, the Lord told him, well, if you have a King James, it's seven times 70, and if you have a modern translation, it's just 77. The point irregardless of the number, is that it's a huge number. Um, and, and I think the point, why did the Lord give Peter such a huge number, is if you're counting offensive, offenses, then you're not forgiving. So with that, and uh, Peter being set back on his heels, let's read this uh, story of the unforgiving servant. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold <clears throat> with his wife and children and all that, that they, he had. <clears throat> and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, having, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and sh should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus said, So as also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right, Matthew 18, 23-35, we're going to be working through this parable of the unforgiving servant. We're going to break it into uh, five sections, the offense, the request, the release, the new offense, and the verdict. The offense is against the king. The debt of 10,000 talents, talent is actually... 3,000 shekels or what's considered a year's income. If you, ha if you haven't got the book yet and you're going to get it, uh, while Keller's a great uh, author, his proofreader is obviously not a very good mathematician because he comes up with uh, uh, a number based on $40,000 a year as a ab typical annual income and says, oh, the debt was $400 billion. Um, and he really takes that number and does a lot with it in the chapter. Uh, it's actually 400 billion, but the number's huge. So, and back in those days, a customary uh, way to handle bankruptcy was actually to sell the person into slavery and recoup something of what you were owed. Uh, it also, many commentators believe that the concept Jesus was trying to get across is that this person was probably a wealthy governor or satrap in the kingdom. Uh, a debt of 10,000 talents, uh, when a talent is just a year's salary, uh, is uh, almost unimaginable. And uh, the, the people hearing this uh, number would have just it would have been unimaginable to him. Um, we've also kind of come to realize that uh, the number 10,000 is the largest, uh, largest number in the Greek, Greek language where there's a distinct word for that amount. 
So that may have been another reason it was used. All right, so let's look at the offense. Why did they introduce such an inconceivable number? No king in real life could have or would have given any servant 10,000 talents. If we recognize here that the king in this story is God, and we are, our humanity in, is the uh, individual uh, servant, the debt that we incur to God is un unimaginably huge and not repayable. And that's the reason for the huge amount. The request. The servant immediately asks, have patience with me uh, and I'll pay everything back. Well, obviously the, the servant couldn't, couldn't possibly pay everything back. And uh, so the release, in response to this pleading, the king graciously chooses to release him, forgive him the debt, which uh, 400 million, if we put it in today's money, approximately. The request for the servant to be patient with me, uh, that word patient uh, in the, is the Greek word makrothumeo, and literally means to slow, boil, or melt. So it hints at the cost of forgiveness. The old English translation for this word is long-suffering. So patience is the ability to bear suffering rather than to give into it and demand uh, revenge. Forgiveness means the cost of wrong moves from the perpetrator to you, and you bear it. Long-suffering. So we see the next offense. The, uh, the forgiven servant goes to another fellow servant who owed him just the, basically the, what would be the amount of a few dollars. And he seizes him by the throat and starts to choke him. Second servant responds in the same way, but there's no corresponding uh, mercy on the part of the forgiven servant, and he throws the guy in jail. The verdict, when the king hears this, he summons the first servant back. And he says, look, I showed, I showed, uh, I showed you How can anyone who has experienced the lavish, lavish mercy I showed you have such a cruel, ungenerous attitude towards others? And uh, with that, he throws the first servant back into prison. I thought it was interesting. Keller doesn't comment on this at all, but I thought it was really interesting that the servant's first state was to just be put into slavery with his family. He would still, you know, not be in prison and, and have his family around him, but his last state is far worse, where he's thrown in prison 
until he repays an unpayable amount. So the meaning of this parable is not hard to discern. The king is God himself. We all are the servant. The 10,000 talents is the infinite debt we owe God. God created us and sustains our lives every second, and we owe him our supreme love, dependence, and obedience, but we do not give this to him. And again, Keller doesn't put this in, but this has just been in my mind a lot this last year or so. Uh, Romans 1, we do not give him the glory he deserves, and neither are we thankful. Which I, I tend to think is probably the, some of the root of pretty much any sin that we pursue. All right, the difficulty of forgiveness. As seen from the introduction, forgiveness is perceived as difficult and problematic in our society today, and the parable is more than realistic about this. The unforgiving servant couldn't uh, manage to emulate his king. Forgiveness is difficult for us to receive. Forgiveness is not merely difficult for us, the parable, and Keller will get into this, the parable hints at the extraordinary costliness of forgiveness to God. And forgiveness is also difficult for us to grant. We see that the servant's pathetic offer to pay the king back is unrealistic as any effort to earn our way to heaven through good works. It's an unpayable amount. We cannot pay it back, no matter what we will try to do. Forgiveness is also difficult for us to grant. The callousness of the forgiven servant towards others uh, is probably the most shocking part of the story. And here's where I told you Keller aims for right between the eyes. He asks the question, yet we who live only by the mercy of God every second of our lives fail to be kind, merciful, generous, gracious, and forgiving every day. This story then is an arrow pointed directly at our own hearts. The definition of forgiveness the story helps us see the core definition of forgiveness. In the person of the king, God did four things. First, he brought the man before him. He took pity on him. He forgave the debt and released him. This parable shows that anyone who truly forgives as the king does is then obviously open to the restoration of the relationship. And this is dependent on the response of the one to whom forgiveness is extended. Because the servant does not respond to the king's forgiveness with genuine repentance and a changed life, the relationship with the king in this story breaks down again. Okay, so... The definition of forgiveness, number one, he brought the man before him, and what did he, what did he do? 
he confronted him with the truth of the situation that was impacting their relationship. Rather than cover it up or come up with excuses, forgiveness starts with truth-telling. Right, but then the king took pity on him. To have pity on someone who has wronged you means deliberately that you deliberately do the internal work of understanding the perpetrator's situation. You do the work of understanding the perpetrator's vulnerability. This is not a natural thing to do. Our heart wants to concentrate on how we've been wronged how bad the wrongdoer is, and how much he deserves to suffer. But the king, representing God, thinks of the perpetrator not just as a villain, but as a human being, with his own fears and griefs. To cancel the debt, then, brings us to the very heart of forgiveness. When the king forgave the debt, it means he absorbed the loss himself. And as pointed out, this is not, we're not talking about money. Forgiveness means when you want to make them suffer, instead you refuse to do it. This refusal is hard, it is difficult, and costly. But through it, you are absorbing the debt yourself. Some think that by remaining angry, they're giving the wrongdoers what they deserve. But in reality, you are enabling their actions to continually hurt you. Finally, uh, number three in the definition, the king let him go. This means the relationship between the man and the king was restored. The man was no longer a debtor. The, the amount which was unpayable had uh, been absorbed by the king. Keller puts, uh, points out that, in fact, if we don't do this, if we don't forgive the person, our idea of justice-seeking will likely veer into the territory of revenge. But this parable does not descend to that level of detail. Instead, it shows that anyone who truly forgives as the king does is open to reconciliation and to the restoration of relationship. That should be the Christian's motivation in their heart to uh, be willing to forgive. However, because a servant does not respond to the king's forgiveness with genuine repentance and a changed life, the relationship with the king in the parable breaks down again. So to forgive then, it's first to name the trespass truthfully. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner. Um, 
It is to will their good. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt or the loss or the hurt yourself. And finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. The dimensions of forgiveness. Perhaps the most fundamental lesson the parable of the parable is that human forgiveness must be based on the experience of divine forgiveness. A superficial reading of verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, has led some to interpret Jesus as saying that God's forgiveness of us depends on and is earned by our forgiveness of others. Incorrectly. But the narrative of, that, of the story doesn't fall, uh, fit that interpretation at all. The king extends forgiveness first. Forgiveness of his fellow sh- uh, servant should have been based on and motivated by the king's forgiveness. Jesus' final sentence means the divine mercy should change our hearts so that we are able to forgive as God forgive, forgave us. The main idea here is found in the king's words of uh, verse 33, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. So human forgiveness is dependent on divine mercy. In other words, there are three basic dimensions to Christian forgiveness. First, there is the vertical. Oh, and I do have a pointer here, but. All right. God's forgiveness to us. Second, there is the internal. Our granting of forgiveness to anyone who has wronged us. Third, there is the horizontal, our offer to reconcile. The horizontal is based on the internal, and the internal is based on the vertical. What he's saying here is that when we understand the forgiveness that has been given us and we receive a, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of, and our heart of stone is done away with, it should change our thinking. And our core desire should be to emulate the example of our Savior. And the first response into wrongdoing would be to forgive and to want to restore that relationship. So we must consciously base our forgiveness on others, on God's forgiveness of us. The king's forgiveness should have made this servant a forgiver. Why didn't he? Uh... Keller's going to explore that in the rest of this book. So I'm not going to jump ahead. But in a nutshell, it's the lack of authentic repentance on the part of the servant. 
the servant fell down and asked for mercy, not because he was repenting, but he didn't want to be sold into a slave. And uh, it was self-preservation. It was self-pity. But it wasn't true repentance. Jesus' final words that forgiveness must be from the heart are crucial. It has to be from a, a changed heart. If there is not a changed heart, then there cannot be a link between the vertical where God has given us His Spirit and, and we are being moved to be Christ-like and that desire to be Christ-like then will manifest out horizontally to uh, those in our lives. And if that hasn't happened, then there's not going to be genuine forgiveness. Okay, he talks about the failures of forgiveness. uh, Keller tells us, don't miss the confrontational nature of this parable. This parable is an account of forgiveness failure because forgiveness failure is the typical, usual human story. If you believe the gospel that you are saved by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God and you are still holding a grudge, here we go, the bullet between the eyes by Keller again, At the very least, it shows you are blocking the actual effect of the gospel in your life. Keller actually goes on and says, we need to evaluate if we've actually been saved. If we have actually been regenerate. If we've actually truly repented and received forgiveness. So this story, this parable that Jesus is telling this crowd about forgiveness is not a feel-good story. It's not a story about people who have received God's forgiveness and then are eagerly spreading that love and forgiveness to others around them. Rather, it is a story about a man asking forgiveness and then being utterly unchanged when he gets it. going to just move towards the end here. And I've highlighted only two things. These are critical. The typical scenario in our interpersonal relationships, Keller's position is that it's usually forgiveness failure. We usually don't do it well. Okay? And we're going to get to the end here on uh, what's required to do it well. All right, so the strong and rightful condemnation of the unforgiving servant can distract us from the life changes that the parable assumes, right? It is assumed that the unforgiving servant uh, 
was brought back into the household of the king. He was restored. And uh, yet, uh, that didn't happen. So, growing wings for forgiveness. We don't forgive through trying harder or appeals to social benefits or self-interest. We are to meet the living God through repentance and faith. Receiving Christ himself in a new identity as an accepted, justified, adopted, and unconditionally loved child of God. Then we are to commune with God through word, prayer, and worship so that these objective realities of our relationship with God become more and more subjectively real in our hearts to the point that they shape the instinctive way we respond to life or our relationships with people around us. It should be come a point where we don't have to think it through, oh, I have to be nice to this person because... Or, but it should be a natural, instinctive way. The Christ-likeness developing in us should be reaching a point where we start responding like Christ in situations where the world would want to take revenge. Okay, the king who was a servant. This parable sketches out the difficulty, definition, and dimensions of forgiveness. The only major aspect of Christian forgiveness that it hints at but does not explicitly depict is the dynamic of forgiveness, the basis of it. What is it that enables God to forgive us so radically even though he is holy and just. What is it that enables us to forgive others so radically by giving us the inner resources of supernatural humility, confidence, love, and joy? Or the gifts of the Holy Spirit? It is the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we who live in only by God's mercy, sit in judgment of others, are we not putting ourselves in God's place? If we do, we are judging one another, paying one another back, and then suffering retaliation and giving it back again. We are all servants acting like kings. However, what is our example from our king? And it is a forgiving, long-suffering, and uh, restorative heart. We need to look at the Lord who was punished for us, the punishment we deserve. And this should humble us out of our bitterness towards others. We need to think of Christ when he was dying on the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He is saying that it's obvious that what they're doing is wrong. 
but he wants to extend them forgiveness. And he asks the Father to give it to him. I can imagine any of us on that cross instead screaming out, you'll get yours, just wait till I'm on the throne. Oh man, the Father's really going to take care of you and on and on. But Christ's heart was, Father, forgive them. And he treats his executioners like that. How can you and I, after that example, be cold and withdrawn? And how can we be caustic and harsh with other people? Jesus couldn't, wouldn't talk like that even to his torturers. And may God give us the grace and patience that we can grow <clears throat> only out of this deep grasp of Christ's dying mercy for us. So this was a pretty convicting chapter for me. They always are. I almost, you know, hate <laughs> getting a sign because you know you're going to get it. Do you have any questions? I think this is going to be a really good book. And, uh, and I expect that just like in the first chapter, he's going to be hitting some really hard things and pointing right at us. Yep, yep. Oh, well, I don't think so. I mean, there, there you're requiring some work on their part to earn your forgiveness. And that's not the example we have of uh, Christ paying for our transgressions and paying for our debt. Um, so, no, I would, I, I would say no. Anyone else? Oh, he does. Yeah, he does. Seth has already read far ahead, he told me, and he's just like, man, this is right between the eyes, isn't it? I said, yeah, it is. Is that it? All right, you're dismissed. Thank you. Let's see. Watch your foot, Art. There we got gotcha. you. Yeah.